0: It's the Amazing Rico Bronia Podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Rico Bronya. I've got great news today. We will not be creating any fake trades. No fake trades today because I know about you, Pete. Got a lot of backlash from a lot of angry Met fans with some of the trades I said yes to, some of the trades we put together. And I just want to remind everybody, it's entertainment, baby. We're not the general manager. I am not Billy Epler. You are not Steve Cohen, even though we wish you were, because you'd spend a fortune. So let's all take a deep breath. None of those trades we mentioned is going to happen. Right, Pete? Nothing.
1: That's right. This is like the WWE podcast. It's all just fake
0: news. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I think that fake trades are fun. I really do. I don't think we should spend that much time doing it on WFA, because sometimes it gets crazy. But on a podcast, I thought it'd be fun. So trade week is over. Uh, none of those trades have happened as of yet. I did have one person call up Carton Roberts and say, Evan, I got a problem with you. And I said, "What? What? what's up? And he's like, you want to trade Francisco Lindor for Giancarlo Stanton? <laughs> I said, well, it's a little bit more complicated than that. A bunch of things we're going to discuss on today's podcast, including some of the news and notes over the last couple of days, Buck Showalter officially winning the National League Manager of the Year, we'll take a look at two of the Japanese baseball players that may be jumping to Major League Baseball and if they'll be worth the Mets going after, um, and the latest on Jacob DeGrom and Brandon Nimmo. Actually, let's start there. The latest on the rumors around DeGrom and Nimmo. So, here's the the thing I've noticed over the last few days. Obviously nothing's happened. Edwin Diaz resigned right out of Right out of the start of this offseason, nothing substantial has happened around the major free agents. It seems with Nimo, every day or two, there's a new team that's interested. We heard the Seattle Mariners over the last few days. We heard the Toronto Blue Jays over the last few days. The Rockies were a team we had heard a while ago, but it's not going anywhere. And the fact that Scott Boris is his agent makes me think that the Nimo sweepstakes is actually going to last a really long time. I also think that Brandon Nemo would be smart, and Boris is a smart guy, to let Aaron Judge sign first. That you would let Aaron Judge kind of set the market for outfielders. So I'm under the expectation with Nimmo, it's going to be a long process. I've even started to think that if they lose him, and I don't know if they're going to lose him. I'm kind of 50-50 on the Brandon Nimmo thing. I'm sure they've got a number in mind, an amount of years in mind, and if the Seattle Mariners go nuts, they may let Brandon Nimmo go. If the price is right, I think Brandon Nemo's back. But I am starting to believe that they would replace Nemo internally. That we would see a lot of Starling Marte in center field, a little bit of Mark Canna in center field. And it kind of goes to something that happened this week that's a minor story, but I'm intrigued by. Uh, obviously, every team needed to get their 40-man roster in order. They needed to add certain guys to their 40-man to shield them from being in the Rule 5 draft. And there's a guy in the Met Farm system who I expected to be protected. I expected to be added to the 40-man roster so that they would not lose him in the Rule 5 draft. And that's Jake Mangum, who is a switch-hitting outfielder. And really, all I know about him from what I've read over the last few years and going to baseball reference is that not a great hitter, though his numbers last year weren't terrible at A, and I think at single A as well. But he's a really, really good defensive center fielder. And if the Mets are going to lose Brandon Nemo, if that is something that may be our fate, then if they're going to replace him internally, not that Mangum would be the guy to do it, but he would have a lot of value on this roster as a late defensive replacement. Because I think if Marte turns out to be the most-of-the-time center fielder, to A, keep him healthy, uh, to B, keep him fresh, I think you'd probably want to see a late-inning defensive replacement, and whether that means Starling Marte moving to right field or Marte just sitting the last couple of innings. It would actually make sense to have almost a caddy late in games. Um, but Mangum could be picked up. I mean, he's going to be in this real 5 draft, and I guess he's older for a prospect. He's 26, 27 years old. Um, I don't think there's a high regard that he's necessarily going to be an everyday player at the major league level down the road. But he certainly has a value to this team if they lost Brandon Nimmo. Now, if they keep Brandon Nimmo and, you know, fingers crossed, he stays healthy for the full season. You know, there's less of a chance than, in my opinion, that Mangum would have a role on this roster. But I was a little surprised that he wasn't added because I do get the sense that if they lost Brandon, they would try to do this internally. And I'll give you a few examples of how they could do it. Sort of similar to something we talked about during the regular season when Marte was out. We talked about, hey, how do you replace Starling Marte? And I don't mean Tyler Naquin. Brett Beatty is going to have, I think, a big role on this team next year. He's going to get an opportunity, I think, to be, I don't want to say the everyday third baseman because obviously Escobar finished the season strong, but the Mets have a lot of versatility. So I'll walk you through how at least I could hypothetically see this working. If they lost Nemo, and that's not an endorsement that I want them to lose Brandon Nemo. It's just, hey, if they lose Brandon Nemo, what are they going to do? Brett Beatty plays a lot of third base. Eduardo Escobar, while he didn't do it last year, has a lot of experience playing second base, as does Luis Gier. man. We know how valuable he is defensively. That pushes Jeff McNeil into the outfield and pushes McNeil into a role in which he's maybe playing a lot more outfield than he has last year, hence Starling Marte in center field. Um. I think that's an easier way to kind of replace Brandon Nemo. It's not ideal because I think you lose a little bit defensively in the outfield. You may actually gain a little bit defensively in the infield because maybe it means more of Luis Guillerme, but it also means a lot more of Brett Beatty at third base. You're not gaining a lot defensively. But if you're looking at an outfield of Canna, Marte, and McNeil, it's not ideal. (laughs) I mean, But that's where a guy like Mangum would have had some value. Now, I don't necessarily think Mangum is definitely going to be picked up in the Rule 5 draft, but the fact they've left him unprotected is a little bit surprising. Uh, But really, the latest on Nemo is, yeah, there seems to be a lot of teams interested. The DeGrom thing is different, and I don't want to build anyone's hope up because I've sort of been on the negative side of, of, are we going to keep Jacob DeGrom? Not because of Jake But because I'm worried the Mets have a number in mind, an amount of years in mind, and they may hardline it, that they may not go as far as I'd be willing to go or Pete would be willing to go. But what's interesting about the DeGrom rumors, and granted, they're just rumors. We have to accept that. Everything can change immediately. Is you have Ken Rosenthal say recently, I'd be stunned if the Braves bid on Jacob DeGrom. And let's just use our brain for a second. We know how much Atlanta has spent internally on keeping some of their players. We've discussed it. We know that Max Freed is a free agent at the end of next year. That's their guy. A relatively young lefty who's now been a part of a championship team. I assume, even though they haven't been able to do it as early as they have with some of their other guys, they're going to want to keep Max Freed. He's going to get paid. Max Freed's going to get a lot of money. In fact, based on what pitchers are being paid, I think he gets thirty million dollars a year. Is that crazy? I don't think it is. So knowing they're gonna have to pay Freed, knowing who they're already paying now, I always wondered: can they really offer Degrom forty plus million dollars a year? And if they did, are they going to try to do it on a short term deal? If it's a short term deal, I would have more confidence in the Mets saying, "Hey, we're we're up for a short term deal." So Atlanta, I've always been skeptical about. I know we fear Atlanta. And so naturally, as a Met fan, you always kind of maybe make the thing you're scared about more of a threat than it actually is, if that makes any sense. But Rosenthal said that about the Braves. And I know Ken Rosenthal isn't perfect. He's not the gospel. But using that report plus the logic that you may have about Atlanta, you say, oh, okay, maybe the Braves aren't a threat for Jacob DeGrom. The only other team... You've really heard about is Texas, and now you got to look at Texas and say, "Okay, well, Martin Perez is back, and he's making a, a decent amount of money. If I'm not mistaken, fact check me on this. He accepted the qualifying offer, so he's making 19 million dollars a year. They made the trade for Jake Odorizzi. Not that Jake is any good; he sucks. We all know that. And so you wonder." Are they going to spend $40 million a year on Jacob DeGrom? Are they going to look at their pitching and say, hey, maybe we're better off spending less, but maybe adding two guys, or maybe we do buy a pitcher for less and add elsewhere? So I don't know what Texas is going to offer him. So then you say, all right, well, what about the LA Dodgers? The Dodgers just lost Tyler Anderson. We know they're a big market team. They did just keep Clayton Kershaw. And there are injury concerns around Clayton Kershaw. There are injury concerns around Tony Gonsolin, who missed a bunch of time at the end of the season. Obviously, Walker Buehler, you have to forget about. Are the Dodgers, as big of a market team as they are, and they're still paying Trevor Bauer, are they going to be willing to take the risk around Jake? The, the other team I've always wondered about would be the San Francisco Giants. And I wonder about them because they've made it clear they want to spend this offseason. Aaron Judge is going to be their priority. They may not get Aaron Judge. I mean, I I would say it's 50 50. I don't know what Judge is going to do. And even though this isn't a Yankee podcast, let's be honest. The Judge decision impacts us in a lot of ways because of what I said about Nemo and because of, hey, did the Giants say, oh, we missed that on Judge? Let's go pay Jacob DeGrom. Here's all I know, though, Hoff. I haven't heard yet a team making an offer to Jacob DeGrom. And so is it possible? that his market is not going to develop the way maybe he
1: thought it was going to develop. Well, I mean, it's it's a heavy load to bear to spend that much money on the ground. It's the same thing with Judge, too. Like, And this is something, and again, not to make this about the Yankees, but Stel- Steinbrenner supposedly talked to all the GMs and said, listen, I'm going to outbid all of you guys for Judge, so don't even bother, which is twofold. I, I look at it as someone who's kind of... Saying don't waste your time because I'm going to get them regardless, but also back down because I don't want to overspend. Like I'm not trying to say it's collusion at all, but I think other GMs, other GMs and owners know. Like, hey, we want to keep the value down of these players. So if we're really not in on it, what's the point of trying to outbid other people if we're really not re- realistically going to be able to put forty million dollars up? Why do that to ourselves to our other owners? It's I I do think there's a little bit of I'm not trying to go over the top and say there's a little collusion, here, but I feel like there kind of could be. That being said, that being said, I think Degrom Kershaw was a tell. How much did he make? Twenty four? Did he make about twenty million? Right, he got for one year. Yeah, I think he
0: signed a one year deal to stay in Los Angeles, and I think it was in the high twenties. I'll double check exactly
1: what he got. Okay kershaw making 20 million dollars obviously a little bit older not even really i think they're about the same age but more more wear tear on the arm 20 million dollars for a still when he plays and pitches is dominant i mean that's relevant to the ground yeah no? he
0: actually by the way he got less according to uh this is from about nine hours ago dodgerblue.com that it's Estimated to be worth between seventeen and twenty million dollars, which is nothing. I mean, it's basically—I don't want to say it's nothing. It's the qualifying offer. Um, Right? Kershaw's had an injury history the last couple of years, too. Granted, and maybe there was a quote-unquote hometown discount because he wanted to stay in Los Angeles. I—I wonder because if Degrom was a free agent from another team, okay? Jacob Degrom had the exact same resume, but he did it with another team. How we would view him? If we would look at it and say, ah, I don't know, man, guy hasn't been healthy for a couple of years. I've admitted this. We look at DeGrom differently. He's our guy. And I'd rather fail with our guy than let him go and risk him being great somewhere else. I've made that very clear. And so maybe, and maybe I'm being more hopeful than anything, that teams are going to look at Jake and say, yeah, he's great, but I'm not willing to take that risk. And I think that the Mets should be more willing to take it. So, maybe there won't be this robust market for Jacob deGrom because of the same reason why some of us Met fans not me have said ah oh, i don't you know let jacob because he's barely pitched the last few years we're not the only ones that notice that other teams do so what that could lead to and by the way i'd sign for this immediately is deGrom basically getting a monster one year contract or you know maybe a, a Scherzer kind of deal or a Cepeda's kind of deal where it's a 3 year $118 million deal with an opt-out after the first year. So DeGrom could go out, win the Cy Young, opt-out and say, okay, guys, now look at my market. I'm starting to think that he may not be able to get the four-year contract he may desire. And look, I'm okay with short-term. I really am. I mean, it's it's fine. If you want to pay him on a year-to-year basis and basically say, go out and prove you're healthy, I'll deal with the stress of potentially losing them every single season if it means you get them back on a short-term deal.
1: And here's the thing. So, like, I'm looking at the payrolls right now, right? The Mets have a 32-man roster. they got to fill 40, right? They're at 184 right now and change corner spoke track. I'm not sure if that's accurate, but you let me know. Well, it's not accurate because
0: it doesn't include a lot of the arbitration salaries. Okay. So, that's why when we look at these payrolls and they're a lot lower it's because it's not including that. There's a lot of guys who are going to get raises, so the Met payroll is going to be, it's oh, going to be very
1: high, <laughs> right? But 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 here's but here's my point though is if you want to go that short term route of say, forty five million dollars per year, three year deal with an opt out after year one, forty five even added to a two twenty five payroll, you're you're hovering around the two seventy five mark. Last year's payroll was three thirteen, and again, I want to refer to the fact that they. The Edwin Diaz contract. They made sure it was done by 2022, and they made sure that the mo- some of the money got deferred to the 2022 payroll. Specifically, I know that Puma said maybe they're not going to go with uh, punch drunk crazy with the money. To me, I go the opposite way, going like they have more money to spend this year. No,
0: well, and also keep this in mind with Degrom. He already made thirty two and a half, thirty three last year. So if you're paying him forty two. You're just adding $9 million to what you were spending last year. But but here's the other thing to keep in mind with DeGrom, and we always talked about, well, how do you replace him? Uh, one of the factors here, and it's not the case with Verlander, it's the case with Rodone, is that because he turned down the qualifying offer, and, and I'm not saying this is the end-all be-all, but we should be aware of this, if the Mets lost Degrom and they replace him by signing Carlos Rodon, they're going to have to give up a second-round pick, a fifth-round pick, and I think a million dollars in international money. It's not the end-all, be-all. That's not going to keep me from signing Trey Turner, but it's just another reason why it benefits the Mets to just keep Jacob DeGrom, as opposed to losing him and then trying to replace him. But Look, I'm not brimming with confidence, but I would say any rumor and news over the last few days hasn't been bad. You know, nothing's come out that makes you say, oh, wow, we're really going to lose him. No, it's basically, no well, but, but the, no, the news, if it's anything, is Atlanta's likely not to bid on him. And basically, ah, Texas may go in a different direction. So you start to say, OK, well, where are these offers coming from? What I'd love to know, what is the I assume the Mets made an offer to DeGrom? Why wouldn't you? I mean, you may as well make an offer. Should have. What would the offer be? Because they look at him and say, okay, you opt out. Is it two years, $80 million? Like, okay, we'll get you 40 It's not quite max money, but we're almost there. Two years, $80 million. We're giving you a big raise. We're giving you a two-year deal. Is that what they offered? I have no idea. It hasn't been reported anywhere. I've always said at the end of the day, I'd give them the four years, 180. But it may not come to that. So we'll see. We'll keep an eye on it. The Mets did make a move the other day, which is basically... A lottery ticket kind of move when they claim Steven Ridings off waivers from the New York Yankees. Ridings barely pitched last year. He missed most of last season. It was a shoulder impingement injury, and he spent a lot of time rehabbing that. Uh he throws really hard. He's a redhead, so you know, I'm I'm obviously in my glory. He's a big, big kid, like six seven, six eight. Like I mentioned, throws really, really hard. The concern would be, and look, there's no concern. They claimed him off waivers. There's no harm. There's no foul. Again, like a lottery ticket of, hey, maybe this is going to be a big arm that can help him at some point next year. He's barely pitched in the last three seasons. If you and 2020 was obviously a problem for everybody because a lot of minor leaguers didn't pitch during the pandemic season, but you look at 20, 21, and 22, Stephen Ridings over three years pitched 31 innings in the minor leagues. I'm not talking about the major leagues. He's only pitched five innings in the major leagues. Yankees called him up uh, at some point last season. So he hasn't pitched a lot over the last three years. So it's one of those things where I wouldn't set up huge expectations, but why not? Because you're going to need some young arms to come up in the middle of July. It's just the reality. I mean, we talk about how many starting pitchers you may need on your roster. Uh, to go through an entire season, like you need to go seven, eight deep. If you're lucky, it's probably more than that. It's probably nine, 10, 11 guys that have to make starts over the course of a season. I think you could look at bullpens the same way. You know, you're, especially nowadays, going to have, you know, basically nine guys in your bullpen. So you're going to go through a lot of guys. And remember a year ago, this isn't a new move, but just drawing a parallel. They brought in John Curtis. John Curtis was, a relief pitcher. I think it was with Tampa Bay for a while. And they brought him in coming off a major injury, rehabbed him last year and hope that John Curtis can make an impact out of the bullpen at some point in 23. So now you throw Steven ridings into that mix of guys that can help you because you're going to need a lot of guys. That's the bottom line. Now you got the closer set, which you feel good about in Edwin Diaz. You got a couple of relieving arms specifically. a guy like Drew Smith. Who you can write down for this bullpen. But obviously, there's going to be a lot of little spots you need to fill, including something they never filled last year, which was a lefty out of the bullpen. Two guys specifically were DFA'd in the last 48 hours during this whole roster crunch that, while not perfect, we're talking about DFA'd players. So none of these guys are perfect. Don't don't poke holes in them. We're talking about kind of the bottom of your 40-man roster here. But two guys were DFA'd. That jumped to my attention where I said, oh, OK, can you claim these guys? And obviously, since I brought this up referring to lefty lefty arms, you can imagine where I'm going 2 left handed pitchers. We'll start with Ryan Yabro of the Tampa Bay Rays, who is more of a an opener over the last couple of years, soft tossing left hander. But look deeper into his numbers. And here's what you'll find. You don't have to look. I'm going to tell you. I'm not making you go to baseball reference. I'll do it for you. He gets lefties out. That's what I'm saying. That's what I notice. And what's really important, obviously, it's tougher with the three batter minimum, is if you put relievers in a position to succeed and you don't expose them and you have them in the right lanes. I hate that term. Aaron Boone uses it, but it's sort of right sometimes. If you use the right reliever in the right lane, you'll maximize the best out of them. So Ryan Yabro, who's been used as a starting pitcher, as a spot starter, as an opener, and I'm not saying the Mets couldn't use him in that role too. Like I mentioned before, you need as many arms as possible, but go deeper. He gets lefties out. That's guy number one that jumped out at me. Guy number two. And I was surprised this guy was DFA'd because I remember him with the Marlins a few years ago. He had a dominant season with the Giants during the pandemic year and is a serviceable reliever, and that's Harlan Garcia of the San Francisco Giants. They DFA'd him, and I'm like, okay, bring him in. I mean, geez, we watched Joely Rodriguez all season last year. So if I'm not mistaken, and hopefully this isn't outdated by the time you're listening to this, because I guess these guys could have been claimed. I apologize. Um. Harlan Garcia will be offered in reverse order of the standings to every National League team. So the Mets have a better chance at successfully claiming Harlan Garcia. Yarbrough first to every American League team. Then he gets offered to the National League. Obviously, if these guys clear outright, they become free agents, and then you can just freaking sign them. So those are the two names that jumped out at me because they've got to do a better job. Billy Epler needs to do a better job of adding left-handed bullpen arms. I get it isn't four years ago anymore where you could just bring a guy in to face one lefty. It's a different world. I understand that. So you do have to have some ability to get right-hand hitters out. Adam Adovino was in that spot this past year on the opposite side. Great numbers against righties. His numbers against lefties weren't that good, but he was able to overcome it and had a really, really good season out of the bullpen. So uh, those are two names that jumped out at me. Bring him in. You never, ever, ever have enough relievers. And I don't think the Mets are spending big on relievers, not because they're cheap, but because why would you? They're all just complete. They're they're all lottery tickets in a way. The rare guy who isn't is a guy like Edwin Diaz, which was why it was so important to take care of him. And they did on that five-year, potentially six-year deal. I mentioned, um, on Carton and Roberts, who was Yankee related, but I'll bring it to the Mets. I I'd sniffed around a little bit trying to find out from other teams like who's available. Like what guy, you know, we we make assumptions that guys are available. Who's out there? And I was reading a little bit about Liam Hendricks of the Chicago White Sox being available. He makes 14 million dollars this year. He had a fine year last year, a decent year. He's not Edwin Diaz, he's not Emmanuel Clase, but had a good year. Decent year, I guess. If he gets traded, his vesting option for twenty four becomes done deal at 15 million dollars a year would the Mets be interested in packaging a James McCann and then a good helpful player for the White Sox in a trade for Liam Hendricks I don't know I'd like to do it because I want bullpen help I don't know if the Mets are going to think it's smart to pay Edwin Diaz as much as they're paying him and then also pay Liam Hendricks 14 15 million but that would create quite a one-two punch out of the bullpen of a Liam Hendricks and an Edwin Diaz. The other things that happened over a few days ago, I'm going to be pr- completely honest. I have no idea who these guys are. The Mets hired Jeff Albert as the director of hitting. He's a former coach with the Cardinals and the Astros, and they hired Eric Yeagers as the director of pitching. He's got a background in biomechanics and this drive line baseball which is a performance center that uses research and advanced data to help players. Here's what I learned about things like this. Hear me out on this, and then we'll move on because I know no one cares. If the Yankees made these hires, oh my God, typical. The geeks are running the asylum. It's the Saber metrics. I can't stand this organization. Fire Cashman. Because we as Met fans are now happy people, And we love the fact that Steve Cohen is buying people. Here's our reaction without knowing a goddamn thing about either one of these guys. I love it. We're investing in the team. This is great. Cohen's taking it seriously. F you, Jeff Wilpon. (laughs) So, uh, listen, I don't, I don't freaking know. All right, Uh, information is a good thing. I don't think information is a bad thing. Now, you don't want to give guys too much information; it'll f up their brains. But when I saw these hires, First of all, I laugh, director of hitting, director of pitching. But my brain jumps to how people will make this good or bad based on your mood. Right now, the mood at the Yankees is bad. So you make these hires, it's exactly what I just said. Ah, too much stats. We're happy with the Mets, so Mets make the hire. I love it. Steve Cohen's investing. Who the hell knows? Nobody freaking knows. Brilliant. Brilliant. Never, never, never seen a better move in my life. <laughs> I love that driveline baseball. It's fantastic. All right, the other thing is, and this is more of a fun topic, Buck Showalter won the National League Manager of the Year. Congratulations, Buck. 101 wins. Uh, I think all of us as Met fans were overall very happy with what Buck Showalter did this season. Uh, real quick, from afar, Do you think the manager of a team that had a division lead all season long and then managed to lose it, I'm not going to say blow it, lose it in the final days of the season, would we from afar think that manager should be manager of the year? Let's all be honest with ourselves. I already picked, I love Buck. I love Buck. Love me some Buck. Uh, Really? Is he the manager of the year? Because I thought about that. I'm not sure if he is. You know who I think the manager of the year is? I think it's Brian Snitker. Because think about this the Atlanta Braves won the World Series. Okay. They come back the following year. They get off to a very mediocre start. They're 10 and a half games behind the New York Mets. You could almost understand, like, ah, all right, you know what? They won the World Series the year before, did not, did not win in the division this year, whatever. Just make the playoffs. They call up Michael Harris. They call up Vaughn Grissom a few months later. They deal with their own set of issues, and they go out and play just ridiculous baseball for a four-month period, and then mano-a-mano sweep the Mets in Atlanta. This is all what the voters can see. Obviously, postseason non-factor. That's why the Rob Thompson thing isn't fair. Anyone who brings up Rob Thompson, dude, it's not a postseason award. The Phillies were a third-place team that tried to blow a playoff spot to the Brewers. Like, I I get the Phillies played a lot better with Rob Thompson as the manager, but you know who else uh, uh, replaced a manager midseason and the team played a lot better? Jerry Manuel in 2008. We're not giving him the freaking manager of the year. The playoffs don't count. I want to make that clear. They do not count. They're not a part of this award. So the Rob Thompson thing is ridiculous. Stop. Don't bring up Rob Thompson to me. Come on. Obviously, knowing what happened, yes. If we counted the playoffs, yes, I agree with you. We don't count the playoffs. So ah, Met fans are gonna hate me. Like I'm raining on I'm not raining on the parade. I'm being honest. The manager of the year should probably be Brian Snitker. With that said, with that said, Buck Showalter was everything we wanted. And when you hear players talk about him, Max Scherzer did an interview recently with uh John Heyman. On his podcast, Max Scherzer loves Buck Showalter. And we haven't heard a player say a negative thing about Buck. And I hope Buck has the staying power. I hope that it's not an act that runs dry. Tom Thibodeau is an act that runs dry. Has a great first year. All right, we're sick of him. So hopefully Buck's here for the next bunch of years, as long as he wants to manage. But nah, when you look at the award, is he? they, they blew the division. I'm sorry. Sucks, bothers me, still bothers me
1: all these months later. Now
0: they blew the division. Is Buck Showalter the manager of the year, Huff? I
1: uh, I don't think so, but I wouldn't give this to Snitger either though. Like that's not the I I, I do. Who'd like, you give it to? I, I like. Listen, I know you're right. It's it's a it's a not a postseason award, but Thompson was able to get his team together. What were they? They were how many games under 500 when they fired Girardi?
0: No, they And weren't. he I, brought I them all the way back.
1: And that was with out there, one of their best players who may be out for some significant time in, in 2023, by the way, with Bryce Harper. Yeah.
0: I Look, Rob Thompson did a Jerry Manuel-like job. I really think. I think Jerry Manuel is a good comp. The only difference was they didn't have extra playoff spots in 2008. That's the only difference. And so the Mets never made the playoffs. But the Mets were sparked after they fired Willie Randolph. There's no question in my mind. And... Okay. They were a lot better. 87 wins to me compared to 101 wins by the Mets and the Braves. And even Dave Roberts. I don't think Dave wins it. Uh, I think what hurts Dave Roberts is that the Dodgers are good every single season. And I think the manager of the year award in a lot of ways has become a who's overachieved the most award. Hence why I think Buck won it. Because while the Mets had higher expectations than what their win-loss record was a year earlier... Winning 101 games is crazy, especially in the history of this franchise. So I think that's why Buck won, because that's what the award has become. Uh, You know, I I was looking back, though, at other manager of the years that the Mets could have or should have won. 86 jumps out at a lot of people because I agree. How does Davey Johnson not win the National League Manager of the Year in 1986? It was actually won by Hal Lanier, the manager of the Astros. Okay, the you know, Astros won the division, had a tremendous season. So on the surface, it sounds a little crazy, but it's not like they gave it to somebody who finished in fourth place. The award did not exist in 1969. The Manager of the Year Award was created in 1983. So you got to uh, realize that Gil would have won it if it existed in 69, it did not. So, all right, Davey doesn't win it in 86. Davey doesn't win it in 88. They get, it went to Tommy Lasorda, manager of the NL West, winning L.A. Dodgers. Okay, fine. No issue. The one that, I, I don't know how to explain this. Two of them, actually. Where I would say to, say to you right now, the Mets got effed out of the manager of the year. And here are the two years. 1999. Now, do you know who won manager of the year in 1999? If the answer was Bobby Cox, I'd say no problems. Braves won the division. they better than the Mets. I got no issue with Bobby Cox. Bobby Cox did not win the manager of the year in 1999. Who the hell was it? You ready for this? No. 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 The winner of the manager of the year in 1999 was Jack McKeon who manage the Cincinnati Reds. Oh, huh, the Cincinnati Reds. The Cincinnati Reds are the team that the Mets beat in the play-in game for the National League wildcard, which, by the way, is a regular season game. It's not a playoff game. It's a one-game playoff that counts as a regular season game. The reason I say that is that counts in the regular season. So the voters watch the game. They watched that lighter shut down the Reds. They watched the Mets beat the crap out of Steve Paris on a Monday night in Cincinnati. And then those schmucks went to bed and said, let's vote for Jack McKeon. Now, I'm giving the writers too much credit. That's not what they did. The bunch of lazy bastards. They voted for Jack McKeon a week earlier. They sent their little ballot in. They said, oh, the Reds, what a cute story. They sent it in. That's what they did. Bobby Valentine was the manager of the year in 1999. Why you ask? Oh, okay. I'll answer it for you. The Mets were struggling. The Mets were really, really struggling. They lost a Friday night game to the New York Yankees in June. They lost a Saturday afternoon game to the New York Yankees in June. And then Steve Phillips decided, you know what I'm going to do? I can't fire Valentine because I don't think Fred is going to go for that. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to cut Bobby's balls off. I'm going to publicly. What's that term for cutting someone's balls off? Is there like a a, a, almost a medical term?
1: Uh, Castrate. castrate, Yeah. Castrate.
0: (laughs) I'm going to publicly
1: castrate
0: Bobby Valentine, and I'm going to do it at Yankee Stadium. And so Phillips fires all of Bobby's coaches. Oh, you like Bob Apodaca? Too bad, Bobby. He's gone. The Mets go out on that Sunday night after Bobby gets castrated, and they win. Al Leiter pitches well. Mike Piazza hits a home run off Roger Clemens. More on that later. And the Mets go on a run. The Mets get hot. The Mets, I think, beat the Blue Jays about a week later, interleague play. And they go on a run, end up having a tremendous season. They have a great race with Atlanta. They come up short because Chipper Jones is an evil son of a bitch. And the Mets win the wild card. Manager of the year! Manager of the year! Someone let Bobby know he's the freaking manager of the year. Why I'm so pumped about this right now, I have no idea. I don't know
1: why. You're on, <laughs> you're on a, a, on one right now. You're fucking on. Oh, excuse me, you're on one right now with this. You, you but you are. Guess you... what?
0: Guess what, Pete? What?
1: I I ain't done. There's yeah. another
0: travesty in manager of the year land. You want to hear another there, one? There,
1: okay. So there's only two other options. I think it's either, it's it's got to be a playoff team. Clearly correct.
0: Maybe. Maybe. (laughs) Yes, yes it is.
1: So, I mean, it's either Willie Randolph or Terry Collins. I'm going to lead towards Terry Collins 2015. So, it's
0: not Terry Collins in 2015. And I'll tell you why. Terry did a fine job. It's not a knock on him. But the manager of the year that year was Joe Madden, if I'm not mistaken. The Cubs had a better record. They had a great year. I forget what their expectations were. But they also did it in a very difficult division. If you recall that year the National League Central had three playoff teams. They had the St. Louis Cardinals. They had the Chicago Cubs. And I think they had the Pittsburgh Pirates. I think those are the three teams that made it in 2015. And the Cubs won the wild card game and then defeated St. Louis in the divisional series. Obviously, none of that stuff matters. It's a regular season award. But Joe Madden and the Cubs won a lot of games that year. So while Terry did a great job, especially considering the adversity the Mets faced, he did not deserve the manager of the year that year. Uh, I got no problem with that. It's 2006. Because if you recall, the New York Mets were like the only good team in the National League that year. Only good team. The Mets won the most games in the National League by a lot. We all know what ended up happening. NLCS to the Cardinals, who only won, what was it, 82, 83 games But do you know who the manager of the year was that year? Because wait, if it's not Willie Randolph and they won the most games in the National League, who would it be? Would it be Tony La Russa and the Cardinals? It would not. No, 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 no. Would not. What if I told you that the manager of the year finished under 500? What if I told you that? Would I be lying to you? I would never be lying to you like that. It was the year that Joe Girardi Managed the Florida Marlins. They defied all expectations. They were supposed to be the worst team ever. And they won 78 games that year. And Girardi ended up getting fired, if you recall, because Jeffrey Loria is just an evil douche. So Girardi gets fired, but they win 78 games, stunningly. And he's the manager of the year over Willie Randolph. I mean, I could scream and yell, I'm not going to, because here's why. It's so absurd, so absurd that Willie didn't win the award. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just calmly give you the facts and then everyone else can scream and yell. The Mets had the best record in the National League. The Marlins were 20 games worse. 20. And Joe Girardi won manager of the year. What an effing disgrace. If you're Willie Randolph, You must think to yourself, wait a second, let let, me get this straight. I wasn't given another managerial job, never given a second chance, and the voters didn't give me the freaking manager of the year when I managed the best team in the National League by 10 miles? Crazy. Absolutely crazy. Now, a few other things, because I'm having fun with this. Any other award that the Mets got screwed on, I'll give you one. This is before my time, but to me, it's crazy. 1985, Doc Gooden won the Cy Young. Of course, it was one of the great seasons of all time. Doc Gooden should have won the MVP. He should have been the first New York Met, only New York Met, to win a most valuable player award. I'm not one to cite war because I think it's overrated. But Doc Gooden's war in 1985, it should be arrested. I mean, it was crazy. They had like a 12 war. The other one, I, I'm not going to bitch about it. It's just close finishes. Piazza finished behind Bonds and Kent in 2000. I don't really have an issue with that other than the fact that Bonds and Kent were teammates. So you figured maybe they would split the vote. Uh, Beningo would kill me if he heard me say this because this would bother him. <laughs> The MVP in 88 was not Darryl Strawberry or Kevin McReynolds. I think a lot of Mets fans like to bro, say
1: that. <laughs> bro! what are we
0: doing here? Kirk Gibson? My ass, bro! Uh, I don't know if it should have been Kirk Gibson. I know that Strawn and McReynolds were not necessarily the MVPs that year. Uh, Beltran in 06 put up some very worthy numbers, and he only finished fourth. David Wright. Probably deserved a lot better in 2007. He finished fourth, but had a tremendous season. And then the other guy, I can't say he should have won the award, but had one of the most dominant seasons we've ever seen is DeGrom in 18. DeGrom in 18. If the Mets won games, I think he wins the award. I think it's one of those things. The Mets just needed to be a little bit better. And unfortunately, they weren't. Um, But congratulations to Buck. I'm very happy for you.
1: Well, uh, not to mention about DeGrom real quick, because that was the year that he was not the unanimous Cy Young award winner, correct?
0: Yeah, I think there was one guy that Steve Summers verbally attacked on WFAN. Yes, WFN. yes. Yeah.
1: the San Diego guy, yes. I remember booking that last minute, and he joined the show, and within 30 seconds, he was gone. It was unbelievable. Oh, that was a Hoffman special? Oh, <laughs> yeah. I, I I didn't butter him up as well. I was like, yeah, we just want to talk a little bit. It's great. Next thing you know, uh, the rest was history. But. That being said, though, this year was the first year that both Cy Young winners were unanimous. Does that rub yes. you at all the wrong way that like the Gram wasn't even unanimous? And now nah. it's kind of like they just went a unanimous. Man, let's just do it.
0: No, nah, you know why it doesn't? Because to me, that's overrated. Like I think in the moment I would care. Like when an award first comes out, I'll say, oh, how did this guy not vote for this guy? But a win's a win. Because none of us remember how many votes one got. Like, honestly, I, I don't really remember it. And, and the only reason I remember that DeGrom wasn't unanimous in 18 is because of what Steve Summers did to the to the guy. Like, honestly, that would be the only thing that would even cause me to, to say, oh, he didn't get every vote. So that kind of stuff doesn't bother me. I mean, Justin Verlander and Sandy Alcantara were so clearly the Cy Young Award winners. Like, it wasn't even wasn't even a question to me. It would have been a disgrace if they didn't get the unanimous votes. And and it didn't bother me how many votes Edwin Diaz got. You know, Edwin Diaz had a great season. He had an all-time great closing season. It's very difficult for a closer to win a Cy Young. Uh, the only times it really should happen is if there's just no obvious winner as a starting pitcher. If we just have one of those years where you look around and say, eh, there's no one who really deserves the Cy Young, then I think you go towards the reliever. But it's very difficult for reliever to win a Cy Young award. But I didn't care how many votes Edwin Diaz got. Like, the thing about these awards, I, I'm I'm happy Buck won. Like, in all seriousness, I, I'll give you my opinion that maybe I wouldn't have voted for him, but that doesn't matter. Like, he won, and that's great. He's a Met. I'm a Met fan. I'm happy he won. There are certain times where the awards have mattered to me. DeGrom winning the Cy Young mattered to me, but I'm also a fanboy of Jacob DeGrom. You know what I mean? I think an MVP would be very special because the Mets still haven't had one. And you know, when I just went through a few of the candidates, none of those guys are even that close in terms of voting, in terms of winning the award. So we haven't even had an MVP make a run. Like we've had guys who are like, Oh, he's had an MVP caliber season, but like you look at Alonzo this season, a great year, no doubt. Love Pete Alonzo. He wasn't the MVP. Everybody knew that. So, I guess if the Mets were close to winning an MVP, I'd get more into it. But in general, yeah, the DeGrom stuff I was into, I'm trying to think any other awards. I I know a bunch of rookie of the years. DeGrom won rookie of the year. Pete won rookie of the year. Uh, R.A. Dickey won the Cy Young. That was a close vote. I didn't care that much about that one. I got to admit, like, I was happy Dickey won, but I wasn't like, oh, my man won. I was like, oh, okay, great.
1: Let's trade his ass. Were you into the fact that he won 20 games? Like, I remember going to that game, that, the game that he won, the 20th game specifically. So I'm like, oh, this is a nice achievement.
0: Yeah, because there was nothing else to root for. <laughs> because terrible. the team was bad. I think when the team is bad, it leads to stuff like that. I remember as a kid, Todd Hundley breaking the catching home run record was yep. a huge deal. But yep. that's because the Mets lost 91 games that season. So you needed things to almost cheer for. A couple of things I want to get to Uh, the Japanese players that are entering free agency. Kode Senga is a free agent. Very simple. Free agent. Uh, Masataka Koshida has to be posted. And I guess the way that works these days is that once he's posted by his Japanese team, every team can negotiate with him. And then there's this 30 day window. So I'll start with Yoshida because I don't think he's that interesting to the Mets. I I don't see a fit. Um, I don't think the Mets are going to invest in an outfielder, not named Brandon Nimmo. Plus I think he projects more as a left fielder than a center fielder. If, uh, if I'm correct now, one thing that's appealing about Yoshida is he hits for a high average and never strikes out like that's kind of cool. I think that's something that fits the Yankees a little bit more. I think for the Mets, you're looking for some pop. I think he's got a little bit of pop. I think he's at about 20, 25 home runs, but I just don't expect the Mets to be that in on Yoshida. If they lost Brandon Nimmo, maybe. But I also think the timetable is going to be a big deal on this. If he's posted tomorrow and the 30 days start now, I find it really hard to believe that the Mets would bid on him without knowing an outcome on Brandon Nimmo. Mark Cannon is signed on this team. He's here next year. Starling Marte is signed. He's here next year. Uh, I, I just don't necessarily see Yoshida being a fit. The guy who could be a fit is Kodai Senga. So he's 30, or he's going to be 30 when the season starts. So I was looking at his numbers, and I was trying to find comparables. And what I mean by that is we've had guys come from Japan who have been awesome. We've had guys come from Japan, and they've been okay, not bad. We've had guys from Japan, they have sucked. This is not an exact science. It's just that we're trying to look at guys who put up numbers in a league that's clearly better than AAA, but is not quite the major league level. So you're trying to figure out, okay, well, how's this going to translate? A lot of guys that come over, come over young. Shohei Otani came over young. Yu Darvish came over young. Cody Senga's 30. Cody Senga has pitched 1,300 innings in Japanese baseball. It's a lot of innings. His numbers, they're amazing. Like his career numbers, he has a two four two ERA. Last year, he pitched to a one eight nine ERA. Now I looked and I said, all right, let me try to find some comparables, and I'm going to give you two. And I'm just going to let you know, neither of these guys are going to excite you. You say Kikuchi has similar numbers in Japan. Now you say Kikuchi has come over and he has mostly sucked. Doesn't mean he's going to be you say Kikuchi. Kenta Maeda had similar numbers. Maeda's been solid. He's been fine. I think the way you have to view Senga, and here's the way I view Senga, is back of the rotation, but maybe you hit the jackpot and he's a lot better than that. And so that's why I wouldn't view Senga in any regard to Jacob DeGrom. If you're losing Jacob DeGrom, Kode Senga can't be the guy that replaces him. Kode Senga replaces Chris Bassett? Okay. I'm okay with that. Uh, Kode Senga replaces Taiwan Walker. Sure. I think you have to view him as back of the rotation, maybe middle of the rotation. And if somehow he's Masahiro Tanaka in his first few years or he's you, Darvish, jackpot. But I think you have to view him as a middle to back of the rotation guy, despite how good his numbers were a year ago.
1: How much does this cost, though, and do you have to put up, like, I remember there were some, if I'm correct, when row and some others, you had to pay money just to talk to him, and then you had to bid. Is that the same yeah. way?
0: No, so Senga's a free agent. Uh, he waited the full kind of service time in Japan. He's just a free agent. Uh, the other guy would be a posting situation. I know the posting rules are different nowadays. It used to be a blind post, if you recall, where every team had to put a number in. Probably, you know, yeah, yeah, like yeah.
1: That.
0: The rules are very, very different now. So with um, uh, Yoshida, it would be a posting with Senga. It would just be flat out signing him. I've seen projections at about 15 million dollars a year. Now, Carlos Carrasco's back making 15 million dollars. Tyler Anderson didn't get as much as I thought. Uh, he got 13 million dollars a year. So probably in that in that range. So he would be paid as if he's a middle-to-back-of-the-rotation guy. He's not being paid like an ace. But I find that intriguing because maybe he is. You know what I mean? It's like one of those things where I
1: wouldn't expect him to be, but maybe he's great. He comes over and he's freaking dominant. Listen, compare him right now to the other free agents that are available that I keep on hearing. And again, there was a projection that MLB trade rumors put out. Like There's four guys, which I don't give them any credit. I don't know who these guys are. But they were like projecting where the top 50 free agents would go. And there were seven guys that combined. The these four thought that maybe like like one guy, one of the four guys, was like, oh, I think Degrom may go to the Mets, but it wasn't. What wasn't like a lot of these free agents are going to the Mets, but but the ones that they talked about was Andrew Haney, um, Jose Quintana, uh, I am trying to, Michael Waka, those type of pitchers, and I am like, that's not appealing at all. That. Carlos Rodon, obviously, is one that that is potential. But, but besides him and DeGrom, these other pitchers are low-level Where backhanded rotation guys. At best, to me, if you're going to do something like that and you're spending spend a lot of money, which is to, to, for Walker it might be $15 million as well, I take a risk on, on the guy from overseas that you don't know, that, like you said, could turn into a Tanaka. There could be a high reward on him. Yeah, I,
0: Andrew Haney, eh, Quintana I actually like, and I think a part of why I like Quintana is that he got traded to the St. Louis Cardinals uh, right before the trade deadline and put together a 12-star stretch. That was outstanding. It really was. He pitched to like a two ERA. He was fantastic. And again, I look at guys like that as replacements for Taiwan Walker, not replacements for Jacob DeGrom necessarily. And so if you're talking about the back of the rotation, Jose Quintana is fine. Carlos Rodon is more of the top of the rotation guy the only guys in free agency that would help replace Degrom would be justin verlander and carlos radon carlos radon has been healthy the last two seasons and he's been great like when he's out there and he's making his starts and health is a little bit of a concern because before that he had a tough time staying healthy the guy's been brilliant plus he's a lefty and there's something about lefties where sometimes they don't hit their peak until late Later, later in their career. I don't want to say late in their career. Later in their career. Same thing maybe with Quintana. Wendell's had some good years. It's not like he's come out of nowhere. Uh, Verlander. I don't know, man, about Verlander. I. He's 40. And at some point, you just hit a wall. And I think we're, we just experienced Max Scherzer where Max had a good year when he pitched and then collapsed at the end of the season. And part of your collapsing is not being healthy. That's part of age. A part of age isn't necessarily you lose velocity on your fastball or you forget how to pitch or you just your stuff isn't as good. A part of aging is just not being able to stay healthy. And it's difficult to rely. Like, if you're losing DeGrom, and I get the health questions. I'm not trying to ignore that he doesn't have his own health questions, but he's not 40. He doesn't have as many innings under his arm as Verlander has. I have a tough time imagining Verlander is going to come anywhere near what he did this past season when he won the American League Cy Young. So as a backup plan in losing DeGrom, okay. But Rodon almost appeals to me more only because the upside is there. He's 11 years younger. You know, so. uh, (sighs) Now you signed Rodon and Verlander along with DeGrom. Sign me up. I'm in. Oh, yeah. Now
1: we're in business. Now we're talking. Now, Steve Cohen <laughs> is just throwing the money around. Let's go, but that's what we. Wait- I'm waiting for that. F like I gotta be honest. Every day that goes by now, listen, it's November 16th when we're recording this podcast. There's been a, this has been like zero percentage of the free agency period of the of this offseason. So I know it's early, but every day that goes by where there's no rumors, there's no talk, get nervous. Do you know that I've heard more than anything else is hmm. Mets may be interested in bringing back Michael Conforto. That, to me, is like another dagger to the chest. Like, I'm over that experiment, and I understand, like, you you said it, and I think we talked about it, you'd be open to, like, a minor league deal with him or something like that, but, like, there seems to be more, like, legitimate, like, maybe they bring him back and he'll play right field.
0: I got no issue bringing Conforto back. I know we disagree about that. I don't, and it's not going to be a minor league deal, I admit. It would probably be a one-year deal that – I I would assume it's a one-year deal. I'd assume it's, if I had to guess right now, he's going to get, it's going to be less than the qualifying offer from a year ago. I'm going to guess $12 million. And on a one-year deal for a guy who we know what he can do, I got no issue with that. I really don't. I'm not against bringing Michael Conforto back. I mean, I'm not replacing I'm not saying I'm bringing him in to replace Brandon Nimmo, but he does give you more outfield
1: versatility if Starling Marte is going to play a lot of center field. Here, here's my biggest problem right now is, F, everything that we've talked about is he's not going to replace this guy, but it would be okay and add depth. There, That means so far the team is getting worse than it was last year. If we lose to and we can replace him with Carlos Rodon, which hopefully you know, he's, you know, he's younger and hopefully he'll be healthy. Is that an exact replacement? No. If, if, Nim- if Nimmo's not back, maybe we can get to in as a fourth outfielder. So far, I haven't seen any improvement.
0: Well, so far we haven't even seen, we haven't seen them get worse either. Like nothing's well, yeah. happened to your point. I mean, we're, we're just <laughs> spitballing what could happen and where someone's role would be. They haven't lost anybody yet. They, they, they brought back Edwin Diaz, but nothing has happened yet to start panicking about. They're getting worse. Hold
1: on. Hold <laughs> on. Hold yet. on. But again, stagnant is not good either because they picked up Vogelbach's option and they oh, haven't and they haven't cut Darren Ruff. That's oh. scary.
0: <laughs> Deep breath. Deep breath, pal. Deep breath. It's okay. It's all. I'll let you know when it's time to panic. Okay. I'm not there yet. All right. Thank you. <laughs> not, not, nothing's happened yet. I think we're just so
1: itching for. Come, come on. on, give me something. Even though they gave us something. They kept Edwin Diaz. And and here's the other thing too is. The, the fact that I hear and you hear, and, and now this is not a slight of like, I, the Mets need to go out and get Aaron Judge. The fact that I'm hearing that the Mets are nowhere close to even bidding on him is questionable to me. Like, why would they not want to improve their improve their team through any avenue?
0: My my theory on the lack of interest in Aaron Judge is that they are plotting a major, major, major push for Shohei Ohtani. And I believe that. I believe Ohtani's on the Mets next year. Uh, 2024, that is. Not 2023, because I don't think the Angels are trading him. Uh, clearly, based on the signing of Tyler Anderson, they're going to try to win. But I do think that that's the big, big move that they're eyeing a year and a half from now, or I guess not a year and a half a year and a few months from now, but only time will tell. Only time will tell. We will whip out our very first mailbag Rico Bronia coming up on our next edition over the weekend. So I'll put out a tweet on Sunday saying, Hey, you got any questions? And you can ask whatever the hell you want about the Mets, whether it's current, whether it's past, whether it's personal, who the hell cares a little mailbag edition. Of Rico Brogna And obviously any big move Will give you an instant reaction Within 24 hours of that news Coming out We do appreciate you listening Pete, you can hear him With Tiki and Tierney I'll be with Craig Two o'clock on the fan Thank you for listening To yet another edition Of the world famous Rico Brogna We hope you enjoyed this episode Of the Rico Brogna podcast It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times.